Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning. If you guys would turn, click, swipe, tap in your Bibles, uh, whatever you do to get there. And uh, if you need one, we have a, a ton of Bibles that are yours for the taking, for free, or to borrow for the morning. Um, and just throw your hand up casually, and someone will find you and bring you one. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Keeping them, there is great reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for another day to praise you, to worship you, to, to dig into your scriptures together, by which you have made yourself known, you have revealed yourself through creation. Your whole creation screams of your character and your nature, but in the hardness of our hearts, we are blind, deaf, and dumb. And not being satisfied to leave us incapacitated. You are a speaking God. You are a God who reveals himself. And you've spoken to us in your word, and then finally in the last day in your son. So may we be ashamed to be on October 31st, 1517, Martin he sent them to the Archbishop of Mainz and quite possibly nailed them to one or more church doors in the city of Wittenberg. Luther was incensed by the fact that representatives from Rome, particularly a man named Joseph Hetzel, were selling plenary indulgences to the generally poor German people. And what are plenary indulgences. Well, a few generations earlier, one of the bishops of Rome, that is uh, the proper title for the Pope, one of those popes suggested that the Pope has authority to award a relief from the temporal punishment of sin on the basis of good deeds that others had done. Let's put that another way. Uh, sometime after the turn of the millennium, not this one, but from 1000 to 1001, some Christians slowly developed this idea of purgatory, a, a place where impure, imperfect Christians were to go after death and, and they'd have their sins purged or burned away. That might take days, 
That might take thousands of years, depending on how you had lived your life. But suffice it to say that by Luther's day, uh, many took it to be a very long and a very painful time, something you did not want to endure. Well, needless to say, purgatory is not taught in Scripture, and it really can't be substantiated on the basis of the teaching of any early Christian thinkers. It was a late invention. But nonetheless, if you loved your family, or your own life, for that matter, you might be concerned about how much time they would spend in such a fiery place. And what the Pope began to claim was that he had the ability to award release from the punishment of purgatory in part or in whole, on the basis of doing some good deed, some religious activity, or some gift. By the 1500s, by the early 1500s, Pope Leo X was undertaking to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Some of you have been there, some of you have seen it. It's a beautiful and gorgeous uh, 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 building. It's one of the main attraction to this day in the city of Rome. It would also be the Pope's new residence, palace. Very expensive, though, and in order to finance the construction, he issued a new set of plenary indulgences that could be had for mere money. He commissioned preachers to offer these indulgences across the Roman Empire. For a small price, you could free your loved one for the pains of purgatory. And for that small price, you could help build the palace of the Pope. In fact, so urgent was this that Leo suspended all other indulgences, all other preaching of indulgences for eight years to emphasize this new opportunity. Now, I know at first blush this sounds incredibly shady and corrupt. And I, and I know you might be tempted to think that there's no way that the details could be that simple, that I'm, I, I'm overlooking some facts, but I, I'm here to tell you that there really isn't much in the historical record to mitigate this. This is a very sad note in church history, and there's not a lot of good ways to spin it. In fact, the commissioned preachers were instructed about how they were to preach. So it's not a, a simple case of that there were a few bad apples. As an old German and Jewish proverb says, the fish rots from the head. So filthy was the preaching of men like Joseph Tetzel that they would promise, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. In other words, as soon as the clank of that coin hits my, you can be sure that your loved one is well. That's quite a line. Now, Luther had been sour on indulgences for a while. His home church, All Saints Church in Wittenberg, was the home of many supposed relics. Those are things like supposed pieces of Jesus' cross or supposed body parts of, of dead saints. And if one were to travel to Wittenberg and venerate those relics, one could receive a, a form of indulgence, some time off purgatory. Luther was not convinced that such veneration was the best Christian practice. Rather, he thought that true repentance was better than indulgences. But it was these new cash-only indulgences 
that really upset him. Well, it turns out that other church leaders were not uh, particularly interested in debating Luther on these 95 points. So the point struck a nerve. They were quickly translated into German and then other European languages, and, and the newly invented printing press allowed them to be disseminated far and wide so that within a few weeks, all of Europe was talking about Luther. And many undoubtedly resonated with his concerns. Tetzel was calling for him to be burned at the stake. And with Luther refusing to back down about these abuses, Pope Leo X excommunicated him in January of 1521. But Luther would get his day in court. He was charged with heresy, and he was put on trial by civil authorities. Separation of church and state wasn't really a thing yet. And in fact, Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire presided over his trial in Barnes in 1521. Luther appeared for three days of the emperor's diet, April 16th to April 18th, and then he defended himself against a stalwart of church history, Johann Eck. Two questions were put to Luther. In short, Eck wanted to know if all these many writings of Luther, because he had, between 1517 and 1521, he had already written quite a host of things. And Eck wanted to know, are these all yours? Did you really write all these things? You said the things in these books. He had. They were his books. And the second question was straightforward then. Would Luther recant of all of these writings? He did. The matter was settled. If not, he was a heretic and a criminal. And Luther thought about it, and he decided that there were really three cases to deal with all these writings. He said, on the one hand, uh, the first case, there's some things that I've said that no one really disagrees with, so I can't recant to those. Those are, you know, undisputed. So I'm not going to recant to those. In the second place, he said, there's a number of things that I've written that point to uh, abuses in the church. And he says, to the extent that I've demonstrated some errors in some things that some people in the church are teaching, it would be dangerous to recant those things. It wouldn't be good for me. It wouldn't be good for the church. And then there's a third category that, you know, there's some things I might have written. I've got a bit of a sharp tongue. And there's some things I've written that maybe were a little bit too nasty. Maybe some things I said that were a little bit inappropriate about this person or that person. If you can show me that I was wrong in being so nasty about those people, I'll take those things back. He didn't take them back, but he did open up the door. He said, if I was a little bit too nasty about them, I'll take them back. Well, that wasn't satisfactory, as you can imagine. And famously, Luther ended his address this way. Again, speaking before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council. Because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then... I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reason. If I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, 
And if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can or will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against conscience. God help me. During private conferences, the Germans state was fled and was taken by German states to part of his castle, where he hit his kept safe. And that's a good thing, because Luther was declared a heretic and an outlaw, and his arrest was ordered. The rest, thankfully, it never happened. But there, though, in Luther's final reply to the emperor was a bedrock principle of what would be the Reformation, and a rallying cry of faithful Christians for 500 years. If you're like me, you probably uh, imagine that 16th century Europe was sort of a monolithic uh, system dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. But it's too simplistic a, a picture. The Roman Empire had been fractured, and, and uh, the heavily Germanic, holy Roman Empire took root. The map of Europe would be unrecognizable to us, but it was starting to develop some of the familiar contours. France and Spain and England were kingdoms in their own rights, no longer under the political control of Rome. And even the European church wasn't so regimented. For a time, the bishops of Rome, the Pope, fled Rome. Imagine that. The bishop of Rome fled Rome and made the head of the church Avignon in France. And this caused no small crisis for those who were inclined to think that Rome was the center of the church. And at several occasions, there were two men who claimed to be the rightful pope, and at one point, three. And the matter was not settled until about 100 years before Luther's 95 Theses. During this time, there were various ideas on who or what held the absolute authority in the church. Some would say the church council. The official gatherings of the world's bishops and pastors to clarify Others would say that the Pope had the authority. Others would say the Curia, the administrative body of the Roman Church. For Luther, and he was not entirely alone in this by any stretch, for Luther, the answer to the authority of the Church does not lie in any man or any man-made institution. Here's words again. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reason, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against conscience. What Luther was arguing was an early form of sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Christian's conscience could be found only by scripture directly stated or logically entailed. There are five so-called solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Of them, sola scriptura is probably the most difficult one to defend. After all, there's a certain self-referential problem. If the, if the Pope says, by my authority, I tell you, I have the ultimate authority. Well, what authority do you use to justify that authority? If Scripture says, Scripture has all the authority, you, you see, there's a self-referential problem in any of this. And it's difficult on pure logical grounds to, uh, to overcome. But we will turn to Scripture this morning. And we begin a, 
a short five series. I want to look at each of these five doctrines that, that were born down the Reformation. They are biblical, and we will be going to the text of Scripture to substantiate these to see why they came about and why they still matter today. A little bit longer introduction this morning uh, to set the stage for the whole series, and I thank you for bearing with me on that. But we will turn to Scripture this morning, and on what basis do we trust Scripture, though, to speak authoritatively about Scripture itself? And from a logical standpoint, you might say that uh, uh, begging the question, circular reasoning, if you will, which is kind of the nature of so many questions about authority. But we have a secret weapon for those of us who are are Christians. In John 16, he told his followers, I still have many things to say to you. cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And Jesus, the Apostle Paul, writes in First Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. So often no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things really given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the spirit. Because the spirit of truth shows the spirit. For the Holy Spirit is a secret weapon. Now, trust that if you're a Christian, your eyes have seen, your ears have heard, your heart has received the words that there are authoritative. And if you're not a Christian, it's my prayer the Spirit your heart. You will And I think that we'll see that 500 years later, we are still fighting a spiritual battle in our own hearts about the place of Psalm 19 gives us six characteristics of God's Word. That demonstrate that scripture is sufficient for life and righteousness for every Christian. Scripture is entirely sufficient for life and righteousness for every Christian. And Psalm 19 is a six characteristic of twin. So let's begin. Chapter 19 uh, begins this way, or verse 7 begins this way. The, the law of the Lord is perfect. So the passage begins speaking about the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh. Now in the strict sense, the law often refers to the commandments, the regulations, blessings, and curses offered by God to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Or, more generally, the first five books of the Bible, then it's actually Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes it's called the law, the Torah. But here I think the meaning is more like Scripture, and it does carry that meaning sometimes in the Bible. 
uh, in God's word very generally. The writer of the Psalms, the psalmist, is David. When David was alive, the first five books of the Bible were most of the scriptures that had been written. Probably Joshua, Judges, and Ruth had been written too, as well as a few of the Psalms. When David thinks about the law, then he is probably thinking about God's word revealed to Israel. So the significance to him is probably more like Scripture than the Ten Commandments. And this is underscored by the fact that each of the lines of the psalm seems to build on the previous one, and, and it builds up different synonyms for God's word uh, to give us a full picture. And David begins by saying that it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. The first characteristic. And the English word perfect suggests something that is flawless and, and something that is without error. And, and a perfect performance is one in which you hit every note or it's something as good as it possibly can be. A perfect game in baseball is one in which not a single batter reaches base, not by walk, not by error. Every batter is required in order without the benefit of any of them running the bases. And Scripture is perfect in that sense. But that's not exactly what David is trying to say. The Hebrew idea of perfection, while certainly including much of the English idea of perfection, also emphasizes completeness, wholeness, fullness, even maturity. What David is saying then is that God's Word is everything a message ought to be, everything a message could be. It is complete, and it is complete specifically in the sense that it revives the soul. When I hear revive the soul, I, I hear, I don't know, cool water being splashed on the face on a hot day. I worked outside in the yard, maybe on a summer day, I, I, I took a cold shower, rejuvenated. And so I was a little surprised when I was looking at the text. And see, the Hebrew word here is a word that we often translate return or repent. We could be very literal. No translation does this because it's too awkward and this is poetry. We need to think a little bit. But very literally, we could say the law of the Lord is perfect, causing the soul to return. The old King James Version pushes the metaphorical language the other direction and writes that the law converts the soul. The best way to take this is probably somewhere in between the King James Version and my personal light and fluffy first impression of a breath of fresh air. This is a soul or a life that needs to be revived. It needs to be restored because it faces a grave danger. This is not a soul that is merely parched by the humid Midwestern summer day. This is a soul languishing on the fifth day of being stranded in Death Valley, California. Your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth. Your lips are blistered and cracking. Blood would trickle down the corners of your mouth except it is dried to a crisp there. You have almost expired. 
This is the revival that's pictured by David. So God's word is perfect. Specifically, it is complete in its ability to restore the soul that is as good as dead. Now, you can understand the King James language a bit. After all, the biblical idea of conversion is one in which the dead are brought to life. Those who are dead in their sins have their sins removed by the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ and are so raised to new life. This is biblical conversion. So you can understand why they would take it all the way, that, that direction. The ramifications of this one idea are immense. But bear with me as I, I want to leave some of the practical implications of this to the end of the sermon when we've seen all six characteristics. But here can you see that at the very least that no matter what ails your soul, God's word is entirely sufficient to revive it. In Psalm 103, David tells his soul, he speaks to his soul, he says, Oh, my soul. He tells his soul that God heals all of its diseases. What are the diseases of your soul? Are you depressed? Are you despondent? Are you anxious? Are you apathetic? God's word is competent to revive you. And what if your soul suffers from the gravest illness of all, disbelief? Paul writes in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Luther himself understood the significance of the word to his ministry. A year after being excommunicated, a few months after his trial before Charles V, he preached in a sermon about the word. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I oppose indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amdorf, I love it. He throws that in the middle of the sermon. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. And so many sermons were converted. Fellow Christians, do you believe that the word of God is perfect? For all of your soul's needs. For all the needs of the souls of this world. That is what David says in God's word. The second correct characteristic of the word is that it is sure. David writes in 
the second part of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, the term testimony here, which is uh, w- would be a covenant term, a term related to a law. Again, he's, just, he's building up synonyms. I'm not going to spend too much time giving you all the nuances of every synonym here, but he's building up a picture of God's Word as a whole. What does he mean, though, that God's Word is sure? Well, it's actually related to the word amen. And it indicates trustworthiness, truth, an ability to be relied upon. Sure. Scripture is a sure guide. It faithfully directs us. We can rely on it. It can be counted on. It never leads us astray. It is, as we often say in a statement of faith or in a theological textbook, infallible. It cannot teach you incorrectly. It cannot lead you astray. It is sure. As such, it's the perfect guide. Early fall. Uh, it is the perfect guide for life. And it makes you wise. Wisdom in the Bible is about living well in general and living righteously before God in particular. The simple man is the one who is naive about life and about righteousness. He's not necessarily a fool. He might be. Uh, but a simple woman, for instance, might be a child. Uh, a simple man might be someone who's inexperienced. If one stays simple, that would be a great privacy. But all of us start simple. That's just the biblical idea of the simple one or the simple thing. I've just watched, uh, unfortunately, the, the Star Wars prequels again. Um, and was reminded again how awful they were. But uh, my children want to watch all the movies in order again before uh, episode 8 comes out. So most weekends, that's part of the part of the deal. We watch the new movies. So we just got through episode 3 again. They're awful. Um, and yet I know many of you will torture yourself through them in preparation for episode 8. And, and you could think of, uh, and I apologize to Brian, who's never watched them, uh, but for the rest of you, you, you could imagine uh, that the simple pen is like the Padawan. Right? The, the, a good Padawan knows that there's much yet to be learned, recognizes his or her weakness, understands his or her deficiencies, senses that the path ahead is long and hard. The Padawan must be be paired with a wise master, a Qigong Jin or a Obi-Wan Kenobi, as it were. That person will guide them and direct their training and path so that they too might become wise. So it's acceptable for a young person to be simple to the things of the world, just as it's acceptable for the Padawan to be simple to the ways of the force. And it's understandable for a young Christian, that is, a person who's not been a Christian very long, to be simple to the things of God and to righteousness. It's not okay to stay there, but it's understandable to start there. 
And in either case, whether we're talking about the things of this world or we are talking about the things of righteousness that pertain to God, God's Word is an infallible guide. This too was part of Luther's argument at his trial in Barnes and throughout his life. He noted that the popes contradicted each other. And the church councils and the popes contradicted each other. So it was impossible for the decisions of the council to decisions of the Pope, however good they might be, to be reliable guides. They might be very good guides at times. I think Luther would have agreed with that, but they are not fully reliable. And so he argued they were inadequate. God's Word is unfailing in its guidance. It gives us true, truer direction. Whatever we need to know about God, and whatever we need to know about God's righteousness, it is contained in Scripture. If that were not true, then the Scriptures would not be sure. They would not be trustworthy. The only way it is a sure guide, then, is that it contains what we need to know. So whether it is indulgences or purgatory or any other notion that is not contained in the pages of Scripture, it is at best an unnecessary doctrine for bringing us to maturity in Christ. It is speculation at best, and so well to avoid closely. The third characteristic that is offered here, beginning in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Here the idea is not that they are factually correct, though again, that also would be true of Scripture. The idea is more moral righteousness. They are moral. They are upright. Therefore, God's Word is a standard of moral living. And the upshot of that is that it is a delight to the heart. Now, I want to look at both halves of that. On the, on the one hand, that the Bible is morally straight and upright, shouldn't be contentious. The faithful have looked to Scripture for moral guidance since the, the dawn of Scripture. But there's a way of thinking that's in vogue today. That uh, suggests that some of what the Bible teaches is actually immoral. Now, if a person who's not a Christian does not know God and does not know God's righteousness, wants to understand something in here is immoral, that, that's one thing. But, I, but I'm speaking of... of a group, uh, I'm speaking of individuals who profess to be Christians who would say that some of the things in the book here, some of the things in God's Scripture, are themselves immoral. Earlier this year, one popular musical artist, some of whose songs you probably know and perhaps love, referred uh, to the idea that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins according to the plan of God, these things are indisputable teachings of Scripture, he called those things both evil and horrific. He was calling this immoral. And there were others, there are others, who would take that part of Scripture that David probably knew best, the law, and they would call this morality outdated. Product of an ancient culture, no longer for us. 
And some would go further and do the same thing with many other passages that they disagree with. They might not flat out say that the teaching is immoral, but they implicitly call it immoral when they ignore what doesn't align with their own sensibilities. And so we make our own sensibilities the test of what's moral or immoral in the pages of the Scripture. Brothers and sisters, we have to constantly be vigilant and, and fight the urge to think that something in God's Word is evil. Yes, it disagrees with some of our postmodern American sensibilities on many points. Just as it disagreed with modern American sensibilities, just as it disagreed with Renaissance sensibilities and medieval sensibilities and pre-modern sensibilities, the gospel has shaped at the sensibilities of every society in which it has been preached, from India to Indonesia, from China to Colombia, from Germany to Ghana. Culture has changed. Nation has changed. But God's Word has not changed. And so, do we submit our conscience to Scripture, or do we submit Scripture to our conscience? For Luther, the answer was clear. We submit our conscience to Scripture. For David, the answer is clear. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rather, when we embrace Scripture as right, it rejoices the heart. We find delight in God's Word. It rejuvenates our soul, as it says in verse 7. And so we are delighted. We find joy in it. Are you lacking for joy? Are you lacking for happiness? And we're not supposed to talk about that. Happiness is not the same thing as joy. You could have joy without happiness. I've read the Bible a few times. The more I look into it, you know what? Joy and happiness are synonymous. Now, you can have happiness and have other emotions going on in your heart at the same time. You can all feel sad and happy at the same time. But David says that the, that the precepts of the Lord make you happy. They make your heart happy. He's, he's speaking to the faithful here for, for sure. And, and so, here's a way to be happy. Here's a way to be joyed. It's to fall in love with God's Word. And I dare say that when we, when we struggle with despair, when we struggle with sadness, and we struggle with pain, and we feel no joy at all, that the remedy for that, one of the greatest remedies of that, is to fall in love with God. And how do we fall in love with God? Well, He's revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture, and He's shown us His Son, Jesus Christ, in the pages of Scripture. And so He gives Himself to us. And so we delight God. You can't delight in God and say that we hate the revelation of Himself. That doesn't make sense. We can't say I love God, but but 
I, I don't really have a lot to do with Scripture. How do you know what God is like to love Him? How do you know what He desires to love Him? I think a great amount of our lack of joy as a people comes from our disregard of His Word. The fourth characteristic is, is that it's pure. That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? God's Word is pure. It doesn't mean pure in that um, sort of spiritual way that we often talk about pure life, this sort of or, or we think about an ethereal moment that happened to us as pure. It means pure in the sense that um, your hands are pure after they've been scrubbed with antibacterial soap and washed away. They are relatively unscathed, right? I have four boys. Um, some of them, especially younger, two or three of them. Uh, I think Jonas is figuring this out. But, but you know, they... You look at them and, and you're like, "Hey, buddy, uh, how are your fingernails doing?" You cut, you cut the fingernails, you know. And you look at them and you're like, "What? What is going on under your fingernails? Like, is that brown? Is that black? You're like, what? What is that color? It is. That is horrible. What are, what are you doing? How are you washing your hands, child? You know, this. What are you doing to them? What are you, What are you clawing at that you're getting this gunk under there? Not so." God's Word. I'm, I'm pretty sure the standards from David's day, you know, roughly 1000 B.C., were a bit lower than ours. But we still understand the difference between clean hands and, and dirty hands. So what do we mean? God's Word is pure. Well, it's untainted by any dirt. And just as you cannot clean yourself with a dirty washcloth, you would not take a, that rag that you use to change the oil in the car and use that to bathe yourself with. You need a, a clean towel, a clean washcloth, or plastic cleaning thing. Something that's clean to wash away. And so, It enlightens the eye. No difficulty in being there. It's only by the pure word that we speak. Apart from the word, we're blind. So Paul can write in Ephesians 5, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And the psalmist can write in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is to say, we see by God's Word. We see by Scripture. And apart from Scripture, we are nearsighted. One. The fifth uh, characteristic is that the fear of the Lord is clean. Clean. During forever. Uh, now, Typically, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is the posture of God's people that we're supposed to have toward Him. It's a healthy fear. It's not terror, per se. It's a recognition that God is immense, that He is awesome. He is awful. In the truest sense of the term, awful. 
he is worthy of our respect and indeed our fear. We know he is Christ. And we know that we do not deserve to stand in his presence. But here the fear of God seems to be a stand-in for God's word itself. The, the, the balance of the poetry suggests that he has the same subject here. And, and the idea seems to be, John Calvin puts it this way, the great reformer from Geneva, Switzerland, puts it this way, but the fear of God, we are here to understand the way in which God is to be served, and therefore it is taken in an active sense for the doctrine which prescribes to us the manner in which we ought to fear God. In other words, since the fear of God is how we are to worship him, here it stands for the scriptures that teach us how we are to worship him. If it was not for scripture, we would not know how to honor God rightly. We would not know what kind of God it is, what kind of worship we deserve desire. It's the revealing God, as we saw in our series on the introduction of John's gospel, and, and he has revealed himself to us first. How is it clean? I'm sure it was odd, but clean is now we're just getting weird. We're getting very odd. And clean here, it, it, it's the word that's oftentimes used in the in the sense of ritual. law about cleaning or unclean animals, the clean practices and unclean practices. And you get certain types of diseases to become unclean for a for a period of time. And and much of Israelite uh, uh, life and and existence in the land of Israel was dictated on these these categories of what's clean and what's unclean. And it's also, it's also used in the sense of purity. Not the sense of pure hand, but in the sense of pure gold, untainted by any other mineral or metal. It is of one kind, and that kind is all good. Well, the scriptures might be of diverse genre and authors, styles, but it's not of diverse work. Every word and every paragraph and every page is pure. Perhaps in thinking about the very nature of gold and silver and how they do not easily corrode but seemingly last forever, David writes that God's word, too, endures forever. So, Peter. Quoting Isaiah writes, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It is unmixed, it, un it is of consistent character. The sixth and final characteristic is that the scriptures are true. Perhaps it would be better to say the scriptures are truth, since the word here is a noun and not an adjective. And as Jesus prays in John 17, sanctify them, meaning his followers, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The emphasis on this characteristic is that in all of God's judgment, his rulings, his decisions, there is truth. And when he concludes that they are righteous altogether. David is saying something subtle but profound. He seems to be saying that when you take them together as one package, they are eminently just. They are absolutely righteous. 
There's a danger, you see, in siphoning off pieces of God's Word, as we mentioned before, but God's Word is a package deal. When you start to splinter off pieces here or there, like chiseling a, a piece of wood for a project, you, you create a picture of God that is no longer just, that is no longer righteous. You create a disfigured monster. We, for instance, often talk about God's justice and His mercy. The two seem at odds. God hates sin, and as a just God, He must punish sin, or He would be unjust. God loves mercy. He's a merciful God, and He's desiring to forgive. How can these things possibly be? And if we remove one of them, we create a disfigured idea of God who is no God at all. And yet he is absolutely just and absolutely merciful. How do we reconcile that? Well, thankfully, we reconcile that in the cross. God places the sins of the world in the body of his son and pours out his wrath on his son. His infinite perfection to overcome our sins. With those who place the faith that might receive mercy. Justice and mercy held together on the bars of the cross. I think about many of those who debate God's sovereignty and human free will. Some will argue with certain reductio ad absurdum that if salvation is by God's election, then nothing we do matters, and there's no use in trying to do anything. And they naively think that God's election and a person's will are fundamentally at odds with one another. And they develop an idea of a God who doesn't look anything like a God of Scripture. The Scripture of Christ The moral responsibility of every human being is God and the rest of God. God's Scripture is actually it down. Accepted as a whole finding of Great amass wealth, much fine gold. Knowing the current price of gold, it doesn't take much fine gold to be immensely wealthy. Nonetheless, David said, more desirable. These words of God are more desirable for us than ten bars, twenty bars, a thousand bars of the purest gold sitting in Fort Knox. This if you could have either one, which would you take? And David says, this I'd take. Have you ever had honey off the honeycomb? That is like, that is the best taste you could ever stick in your mouth. It, it is so saturated with the most powerful and, and, and potent of sweetnesses. And it just fills every single taste with it. It just like coats everything in there. And it, and it lasts, it just doesn't go away, and, and it takes forever for that, that taste to find. And David says, I could eat that all day for the rest of my life, but I would rather have 
Why? Because when I read your word, I'm born. I, 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 I see what righteousness looks like, and I know how to live, and I know what disaster would befall me if I didn't. And I know that when I follow your scriptures, God, that there is great reward. So if scripture is perfect, it's pure, if it's right, if it's pure, if it's clean, if it's true. Then scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient for everything you need. This world and in the next. We've been accused, uh, Protestants get accused of, of um, saying that if we believe in scripture alone, then we reject everything else that's of value. And this is not true. Uh, those of you who know that we can fight why why do we fight why do we need to be a prophet why do we need our own statement why do we fight other authors we don't believe in nuda scripture nuda scriptura which would be nothing but scripture is the only thing that we listen to we believe in sola scripture we believe that, that, that scripture by itself is the final authority we enjoy the creeds, and we enjoy other great Christian thinkers, but the test of their reliability and their viability is whether they faithfully proclaim and teach and instruct and draw out the meaning of God's Word. So the fact that a creed is an excellent summary of God's Word is what gives it its authority, not the other way around. Scripture then is sufficient for everything we need, and, and Stop and think about that for a moment. You can't really go too far down this line of thinking. Scripture is sufficient. What do you need to know about your life? About your what do you need to know about God to be a good Be a sister, be a brother. What do you need to know about God and the righteousness before him? What do you need to know about God to endure the difficulties in your life? What do you need to know about God? to handle the stresses of your everyday life. Here. And if we believe that, if we take that seriously, why is it, why is it for me? It's not the first place I turn. You're like me. first place I turn is uh, Google. Right? First place I turn to in the second place I, I check is Wikipedia because, of course, that, that's what's going to come up first in the results. And then I'm going to read 10 to 15 Wikipedia articles, and uh, that's maybe I get it. Nothing wrong with that. 
But ultimately, to be submitted to God's work first. Not the other way around. We're not stark. Because what we know is infallible. What we know is inerrant. What we know is perfect. What we know is pure. Think about the way this impacts. How how do you deal with you know I I I'll sit in church numbers and church people and Christian people will talk about you know how can we get non Christians into our church and, and we'll, we'll talk about psychology and sociology and uh, pragmatic advertising. Things are fine, they're good, there's nothing wrong with these things. But to a lot of Christians, they wouldn't know how to share their faith better. One of the reasons why they're worried about how they share their faith with their neighbor or their co-worker or their fellow student is they think there must be some great trick or they need to be really persuasive or they need to have some sort of uh, trick or pattern. And and you know what? It, that's a it's a myth. It's a lie. You know what you need to know to lead someone else to Jesus Christ. Scripture faith comes from hearing God's word, not from your persuasive presentation. Father, we confess too often. Though we claim to people the book, though we claim to people the book, we claim to love you, and yet we don't care what we have said about you. We struggle. We've got advice at every place in the sun. We don't We're a hypocrite in that. Wow. Forgive us, Rector Father. May we love the word, light of fire, find joy our souls inside. Every one of our heart moments. They think Christ is 